Thank you for joining for this episode of the Techspective podcast. My guest is uh, John Gillis from Adobe. So, John, if you could uh, give uh, a little bit of background on, on yourself and your role at Adobe. Yeah. So I've been at Adobe a uh, little over a year now, and uh, I work in the Security Operations Center here at Adobe. I've been in security now for about seven plus years, and I've worked at places like FireEye, CrowdStrike, Arctic Wolf, and basically just love the the security world. It's a fun place; it never gets old. So, well, that's true for for every for every one uh, thing you come up with, the uh, the the threat actors come up with two new ones. So, <laughs> yeah. there's always something always something new to learn. Um, I guess for for listeners in general, because even though I you know we've done uh, you know I think this is the podcast 106 or so, I'm not sure we've ever actually talked about like what is the role of a security analyst in a security operations center. So like what does a day in the life look like? Um, it, you know, I guess how would you define what you would consider to be a good or a successful day uh, in the SOC? Yeah, those are some great questions. So a day in the life, I I guess I'll start off with our number one goal. For I, I would say for any security analyst, our number one goal is not to miss malicious activity. And so with that goal in mind, we usually start off the day with a meeting with all of our team and we talk about context of like what's happened in the past 24 hours. And so once everyone's updated with what's been going on, then we enter the day and we usually break into a queue uh, with a bunch of detections to start triaging. And each one of those detections is pretty much just like a complex little puzzle. And we need to understand you know, what's happening and whether or not it's malicious. And, you know, really at the end of the day, uh, there are two parts for me when I know it's been successful. The first part is the one main goal, I didn't miss something that was malicious. And then the next goal that I know that I've hit that I know it's been a successful day is if I've contributed to my team in a meaningful way to improve their experience on the team. And that's usually through process improvement or automations. Okay. Well, I guess that uh, is a, it's a good it's a good segue because you know the, I guess you know one of the primary reasons I wanted to talk with you is related to the blog post you recently wrote for Adobe, um, and that blog post focused on using browser extensions to automate common workflows. Um, so. You know, you, you just you just talked about you know like you know I, I, you know were, have, were you able to contribute in a meaningful way to to your team and and I think automation is a part of that because it's 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 you know taking things that are routine and repeatable sort of off your plate so you can you know focus on other things. But explain to me how that works. Explain to me what that means to uh, you know how how are you using browser extensions to automate your SOC workflow. Yeah. 
So the the way that I like to describe it is that the internet is kind of like the road and the internet browsers are kind of like the cars we drive on the road. And the browser extensions are the features in that car that just make it a better experience for the driver. And so with the browser, uh, internet browser, there are a lot of different points on which with a browser extension, you can automate those workflows. And the browser extension basically works as a little tool on the side and you can interact with the user in a couple of different ways. And the blog post we mentioned using context menu items, which is when you right click something and it pulls up that menu. But there are other avenues too. You can uh, create what you would call like a pop-up HTML when you actually click the browser extension in the top left uh, right-hand corner. Um, but then you can also inject buttons into web pages and create workflows from there. And so you have a lot of different opportunities, I would call it, to help the users automate those workflows. Okay. It's, that That is sort of, it's fascinating to me because I, I feel like there's, um, there's two primary levels of using a browser, and then there's what you're doing. Um, so the, the, <laughs> the standard way is just, I turn on the computer and you know I'm I'm using Windows, the Edge browser is there, and I just use it. Um, the advanced method is actually knowing that extensions are a thing and going out and finding ways to customize that experience. And it's you know, it it was always, you know, there were always add-ons in in Internet Explorer as well, but you know, I think Chrome has stood out as like that's you know that's that's the more like adaptable customizable uh browser platform but now edge is also um built on the chromium browser um but um you know i mean i think for the 99 times out of 100 i'm just using the default out of the box browser rarely am i using any sort of plugins or add-ons or extensions at all and then there's the next level that you're doing of saying, okay, but what if I just kind of like created my own? Yeah, and you know, it's interesting because I I didn't know about this until a couple of years back when I saw a really good example of it with one of the teams that I worked with. And it's kind of like a, a little treasure trove of opportunity that people don't really know about. And there's some barriers there, right? I mean, you do have to know how to program in, in JavaScript. Um, but, you know, we have, you know, things like ChatGPT today that will literally help you almost from A to Z to be able to do it. It's going to take work, but the the possibilities are just really in what you can imagine. Because we all use the Internet browser in a hundred different ways for our jobs. And it's not until you really start to broaden your perspective <clears throat> and say, oh, you know what, I'm copying and pasting this exact information, or I'm doing this workflow that takes me two minutes, but I'm doing it 20 times a day. And once you understand how to automate that first one, then it becomes kind of like this little bit of addiction, because then you're like, if I could automate this, what else can I automate? 
and then you really start to get creative and you start making a lot of things and it kind of like builds on in top of each other because the it's I don't know what you call it, but the moment that you automate something and you save that small piece of time, you now have that time to automate more things. And the more that you spend time automating, it builds on each other and builds and builds until you're in a cycle where you have a lot of time to automate and you're able to do your job better. Um, okay, so with that with that in mind, and kind of tying the first my, my first two questions together, if you take the 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 day in the life of a stock analyst from you know just manual methods, you know, not 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 automating. Like, how much, like, what percentage of your day do you think would be filled with manually executing these sort of routine, repeatable tasks? Like, you know, and I mean, I guess you can you can frame that however you want, but I guess I, I'm thinking of it in terms of, um, you know, hours or percentage of your day that is is now freed up because these things are automated. Yeah, and it's a great question because, and and each sock is going to be different, you know, depending on how large your enterprise. I'd, I'd probably say the larger your your environment is, the more time you're spending doing those little manual things because there's just so many different systems that you have to interact with, and people just haven't had the time to build automations to connect those together. And so I'd probably say. Man, you're probably spending 20, it could be up to 20% of your day just doing these little manual things, wasting basically the time wasted that you could be spending thinking about complex puzzles. You're doing these things that are just draining your mental capacity. Well, I think puzzles is perhaps a good example. So I'm not really like, I'm perfectly capable of doing a jigsaw puzzle. It is not my hobby of choice. Um, my, uh, My wife, however, Loves jigsaw puzzles, and you know, step. Everyone's got you know. There, there are different methods, obviously, but uh, you know, step one for her typically is taking all of the pieces and separating them into you know basic color schemes. Like, all right, here's the purple pieces, here's the blue pieces, here's the red pieces. So you could start trying to match it to the picture and, and see what's what. Um, and it's at that point that you. Are actually starting to do some analysis and trying to figure out okay which piece goes to which piece and so with that analogy i feel like what you're doing with the browser extensions is basically automating the color sorting so you can get straight to the part where you actually look at the pieces and try to figure out what's what's what yeah that actually is an amazing analogy for that i had actually never thought about that before but that's spot on that's exactly what we're trying to do we're trying to put the position, the person in a position where they can start making the complex, uh, the complex decisions, right? Like you said, putting the colors into different spaces. We learned that when we're four years old, but it's then taking the pieces, analyzing them, and figuring out where they actually go. That's the complex portion, and that's exactly right. Well, it, right, and 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 that and that color story is like it has to be done, but it's tedious. And it's something that, from a routine and repeatable, you know, perspective, it's something that is sort of. It's easy to automate. It's easy to tell some. It's easy to tell something. Look, put the blue things over there and the red things over there. Let me know when you're done, (laughs) and and then I'll and then I'll get to work. Exactly, and that's 
that's and I and I feel like it regardless of what job you're in, if you're any in in any job that's tech, we all have to do that. Like we all have that first layer of problem solving where we have to separate the colors and put them where they need to go. And that's the opportunity that you have is right there, right off the bat, is just automate automating that first part. Right. And so I guess with that with that perspective in mind, um, you know, I, I would say that automation seems like it's a, a sort of like it's basically a sort of, a sort of force multiplier. Like you had, you know, you've, you 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 had X amount of time to focus on big problems before, um, but now that you're automating things using the browser extensions, you have, you know, some some multiple of that more time. Uh, available to focus on more complex, bigger problems. So in effect, you are multiplying yourself and your ability to tackle those complex issues where, where you know, I'm not trying to put anyone out of work, but I feel like, you know, it's like if you can automate some stuff, then you can accomplish more important and complex tasks with fewer people. Yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, it's interesting that you put it this way because it's it, it really comes back when for for me the objective of a SOC analyst is to make sure that you don't miss malicious activity, and that that price tag. If you could put a price on not missing malicious activity, I mean, we're talking that's that could be hundreds, if not millions, of dollars to a company, right? And so being able to Take those manual steps, automate them so that the analyst or the person can just work on solving that one puzzle, one puzzle is really priceless in that point. Being able to, and I love what you said, being able to take maybe 4x the amount of time that you had before to be able to concentrate on that one thing. I mean, that's that's the part that we're is most important to us. That's our end goal. That's what we report up and everything. And so uh kind of detailing on some of like the features that that I implemented for our team that that kind of do this and fall into what we were talking about. For example, we we look at logs, uh, if like hundreds of logs. And one specific type of information that we're always pulling out, always analyzing are IP addresses. The thing about IP addresses is, you know, they were not really created for people to memorize them. Um, and you also have to take into the idea that they are either public or private IP addresses. And then on this page, I may see the same IP address three or four, maybe 10 times. And so we, uh, I built a quick function that you could click a button and what it will do is it will scrape the web page. It will grab all those IP addresses. It will separate them into public and private IPs and then give you unique values. And so now immediately I'm taking all those puzzle pieces, right? And I'm putting them exactly where they need to be for me to uh, make the decisions that I need. Where do I further this investigation with this IP address? And I know it's on this page. And so that's one example that uh, you know takes the ability to focus on the real problems. The other thing that we did, and again, it wraps in right into what we were talking about, is when an analyst looks at a detection, we'll have uh, various links on that page to pivot to different information sources for them to analyze the detection more thoroughly. And as I was working on the team, I found that 
we were clicking on the same four links every single time. There may be 10, 15 links right there, but the same four almost every single time. And so what I did was I injected a button into that page. And when you click it, it automatically opens those four links every single time. And then we added on something else. So with Chrome, Chromium browsers in general, you can do tab groupings. And they're extremely useful. They're just a little bit difficult to set up. There's a lot of manual steps to set them up. But this button, what it will do is it will grab all those links in that detection and throw it directly into a tab grouping. And just like we talked before, all those different colored pieces are now organized. And then you go straight into it and you're able to look for the complex problems that you need to solve and everything is kept organized on the side for you. Thus taking like all that tedious work out and allowing you to, in a sense, 4X your attention span right on the problems that matter. Yeah, because I mean, uh, I, I won't try to make up the numbers. I know you, you, you have a better sense of the numbers than me, but of the total log data, you know, only so much of it is going to be any sort of event worth even looking at. And of those events, only so many are going to be, you know, security events that rise to the level of, hey, I should dig into this and see what's going on. And if you're not automating it, that's a lot of tedious work to say, okay, well, I have to look at all the logs. And I mean, actually, I, I would say today, that's not even actually humanly possible. Like the, the 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 volume of log data is it that, that's not possible. So you you have to use some sort of technology and automation. Period. I, there is no way to manually do that. But still, so, somehow you have to get from the log data to these are the events worth looking at in the first place to these are the security events that I actually want to focus on. And that triaging without automation, just to get to the part where you say, okay, here's the ten problems I want to look into is a good portion of the of the effort. Yeah, and it and if you don't have that kind of automation, it leads to something we call alert fatigue. And it's a real thing and it's really hard when you're pushing through 20, 30 of these detections a day, you know, your brain is tired and it's because it's doing all those little tedious things to get to the point where you actually have to do the complex problem and that's the point where I've seen analysts, that's when they make the mistakes. It's not when they're fresh off the rolls and they're ready and they're pumping through these things. It's at the end of the day. And that's funny enough, in my experience, that's when the attackers try to attack because they know that. They try to come at the end of the day. They try to come at you know 12 a.m. or 12.01 a.m. because they know there's gonna be a shift. They know that someone's not feeling it and they're more likely to make a mistake during that time. Well, and if I, I'll, I'll use, I'll use car alarms as an analogy because I, I I'm 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 personally anti anti car alarm I feel like it's a useless um technology but um it works kind of both ways so like if your job was to respond to car alarms and every single car on the street the alarm's going off well now you've got to go you know car to car to car to car to car to figure out okay well someone actually breaking into this car um that's kind of the alert fatigue side of things the other side of it is just general the general apathy that happens if you constantly have these alerts and you go look and you go, you know, and so I'll say this again, like as a as a human being living in society, 
1985, when a car alarm went off, I would look out the window to try to figure out, oh, hey, is that something I, you know, should I call the police? I and mean, it's, it's not my car, but like, should I, you know, should I do something? And you find out that it's always just that, you know, the wind is blowing or, you know, a you know, kid threw a ball and it bounced off the car. No one is ever breaking into the car. And so it's like, at this point, I don't even blink. The car alarm could go off. I don't care. You know, so it's like, I'm not responding to that at all. Yeah, and that, that, that hit it on the nail. That's exactly right. Because we, you know, in security, that happens all the time. You, the car alarm goes off and you're like, oh, I've seen this specific type of detection five times already today. And I know it's not bad, but guess what? On this one, it was just a little bit different and you don't catch that. And so, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Well, and, I, and if I, if I recall correctly, that was sort of the crux of the target data breach. I mean, you had the, you had the HVAC contractor with the access and stuff, but the thing is they did have alerts. Like there, there, there were alerts that said, Hey, there's some stuff going on here. It's just that the, the, the analysts at target were so overwhelmed with alerts. And they're like, yeah, we see, you know, we see that alert 5,000 times a day. We don't care. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, that, uh, that particular one, it caused them a lot of problems because they just were over flooded with so many detections that it just it went into an inbox thing, you know, and into a certain place. And they said, we'll get to it later. I don't know what they said, but, you know, it's just not going to happen today until it was too late. Right. And so to bring it back to this, it's like that's where you ideally would have some 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 automated something. That had you know where you know because your 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 machine learning and your your automated browser extension or whatever uh, doesn't have the same sort of issues that you do as a human being with alert fatigue, and you know so by all means send all those thousands of alerts over there and let them sort them into the blue pieces and the red pieces so you could figure out what to work on. Yeah, and you know there's a there's a level of. Um... How do I say this? There's a part of this too that kind of goes without saying is that when you're an experienced analyst, you know how to you develop your processes and your processes work. That's not the same for every analyst. Every analyst is continually working, but what happens when you design a product or a extension for them is that all of a sudden you're transferring that knowledge of that senior analyst into something that is easy for all the other analysts to follow. So for example, clicking on all those links, maybe a new analyst wouldn't have thought about that. But because it's wrapped in the process, it's done every single time. And so they're they're looking at these things. And if you find something on your team where you're like, hey, we're not doing this right, or we're not doing this correctly because we know we're auditing our, our detections and whatnot, and we're missing this, all of a sudden you have the opportunity to build that process into your extension and then push it out to your whole entire team train them on it and guess what now you have a process that they can follow every single time and in my line of thinking what i like to think is if i'm going to have someone follow a process i want to make it as simple as a one button push because i know life is complicated and if it's not a one button push they're going to have a hard time doing it it's going to take some warm-up time to get there and so you develop that into your extension and then all of a sudden <clears throat> you have your whole entire team and even new analysts that maybe you just hired acting like professional senior analysts right off the bat. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I would, I would, 
I would say that it's similar to, you know, I mean, I, I, I was in the Air Force and, you know, and the military, you know, as much as is humanly possible, tries to ensure that the process is the process. There isn't John's process and Tony's process. Like the, the, there is a tech order that tells you this is how you do this thing. And, you know, part of the basis for that is, you know, A, so, some, someone somewhere decided that's the right way to do that thing. But B, it's just consistency. It's just it, like, at least I know, I don't care if John's doing it or Tony's doing it or, you know, Sarah's doing it, whoever's doing it, it should come out the same because we're all following the same process every time. Um, and I, so I think part of what you're saying it reminds me of that. The caveat I would say is you still need to leave room for change. Like, like so, so there's a, there, uh, I've been on this like pet peeve recently about the concept of best practices because I'm like, says who and when did they say it like if they're best practices but their best practices that someone established in 1995 and we've just been you know going along going well that's the best practice we're going to keep doing that and it's like well no so somewhere you have to be able to look at the best practices and go are they still best practices um and and in your example i think all of that's great as long as you are also still open to the fact that a junior analyst could come in and still go Okay, but wait, I don't think that's I don't think you're doing that the best way. What if we did this? Yeah, no, that's you know, you bring this up and it's it's a great example too to the fact that like that's what's so great about the Chrome extension too is that this is totally optional by the analyst to do these things. And when and I think it really comes into the development of your your processes, or your tools set to and it's a tricky one right because what you're saying is exactly right it's a tricky one to make something that doesn't make it into just a click analyst right where they're just clicking things and not actually doing the complex problem but design it in a way where it allows them to be creative at the same time as in you know and i and i get this with my with my four-year-old right how do i or my six-year-old how do i teach him how to do something without doing it for him and then telling him every single step because he gets caught in this idea that's like, okay, if I ask the right questions to dad, then he'll just do it for me in the end. And that's what you want to avoid with your kid or with your analyst that you're training and everything because you want them to think on their own and be able to solve problems because that's the optimal uh, level of a person, right? When they can solve their own problems and then make those decisions when they need to be made. And so taking all of that into when you design your extension uh, is really important uh, to to allow for that creativity, but also have good processes that push them up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, going back to what I said earlier about you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to put anyone out of uh, out of a job. Um, you know, like some, you know, in, in a lot of ways, the things that we're talking about, um, the, the, these routine, repeatable tasks. You know, yes, it was sometimes. You know, it's it was it it might be part of your job your your day-to-day -day job if you didn't have these browser extensions to automate it but in a lot of cases that's what the entry level level one sock analyst is for like you know like i right hear you 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 have the grunt work you go through the logs you do all this stuff you just you know let me know what i'm supposed to you know focus on when when you're done and you know so some people might go well what you know by by doing the browser extension you're taking away that opportunity for them to 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 you know learn these things or have this job, and I, 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 
I, I want your perspective, but my perspective is like, yeah, but nobody actually wants that job. Like, what if we could just start at level two analyst? Like, you know, like, like yes, there's still some some lower level entry level stuff that people could be doing where they're not seasoned experts with 10 years of experience, et cetera. But that doesn't mean they need to sort puzzle pieces into red and blue. Right. And, and you know, it's funny because I've met I've met uh, analysts on both ends of the spectrum, right? The ones that they love doing the puzzle pieces and they love separating it and they can do it all day. And, you know, power to them. I am I'm totally not one of those people. So it's a different perspective. But in the end, I think the majority of people that go into cybersecurity is because they want to catch bad guys. They want to solve those problems and like find where maybe there's malicious persistence. They want to go track it down. They want to get rid of it uh, because, you know, you get an adrenaline rush doing that. And it's it's pretty fun. But, uh, you know, I think it I think it helps people to to kind of broaden their thought process. It can. It's definitely there is and, you know, we're coming on the cusp of, you know, chat GPT and everything. And it's a really interesting tie in to what we're talking about, right? With with this idea of if you have something that does that grunt work for you, is it taking away from your ability to learn and progress? And I think the answer is yes and no. Um, I think it totally can with your perspective. If you walk into a job and you say, I don't want to learn any of that ever and I just want it to do it for me, then I think you're gonna fall into the pitfall of not actually learning. But if you see those tools as extensions of your abilities and you know how they work and you work with them, you're able to get your job done. And I think the the telltale sign is if you fall into that is if you're able to add to the functionality. If you can actually build things or have ideas and add into it, I think that's a good indicator that you're actually trying to use the tools and extend your abilities along with everyone else's. Yeah. So, I have, I have two uh, thoughts on that. I, I kind of both ends of the both ends of the spectrum. Um, my my, uh, I have a son who works for either programmer works for Texas Instruments, and he uh, he and I were talking recently about generative AI and chat GPT and, and philosophically about, you know, sort of the current state of how, you know, schools and, and employers are looking at it. And then and, and the, the, the general reaction is like, oh, well, you know, you're cheating because, you know, you asked, you asked chat GPT to do blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and, and what we arrived at was sort of like, well, yeah, maybe kind of in a way, but I feel like that's the exact same conversation we had 25 years ago about Google, you know, it's like, you know, when, when I was in high school, you know, I, I didn't have there, there wasn't an internet and there wasn't a Google. So, you know, when that came along and you could just type a search and find the answer, it's like, well, no, you're cheating. You know, you're supposed to learn that stuff the hard way and go find it in the encyclopedia in the library or whatever. And, and now you're cheating. And so I don't think it is. I mean, I think it, it I think it will become a norm. I mean, it'll it'll just become like, and and like from a writing perspective, I feel like it's a, you know, there's a lot of talk right now about like, was well, it going to replace journalists? I could just I can just go ask ChatGPT, right? Write me a story about using browser extensions, you know, to automate SOC analyst, you know, routine activities. It's like ChatGPT will do that, 
um, you know, then we can debate the quality of that and 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 things like that. Um, ultimately, I don't feel like it's going to. I, I don't feel like it, it, it's a threat to me. I feel like it augments, like it's a, it provides like a like. All right, well, let, let me see what ChatGPT's answer is, just as like a foundation, and then I can add to that, build on that, whatever. So very long, but that that's one side. So one side is I I feel like we're at a point where Chat GPT is is sort of the the new Google moment in history, and that ten years from now it'll just be expected that everyone's using some sort of generative AI, and it won't be considered cheating. Um, but the other side of it is we have we have three cars in our family. Two of them are newer and have things like lane assist and adaptive cruise control. One of them is older. It has cruise control, but it's not adaptive. And after being in an adaptive cruise control car for a long time, I got into that car one time. I set the cruise control and it's just kind of going, going, going. I'm like, oh shit, I'm going to hit that car. <laughs> because I was like, I forgot that not every car is going to just not hit the car in front of you. And so I think there's partially a, a concern that, that on that end, that the more you automate and the more you become reliant on that automation, you kind of forget that there are, you know, there was a world that existed without that automation. Yeah, yeah this is, you know, I, I think this has been a topic for a lot of people. We so many discussions, but I, what you're saying, I, I agree with in that sense that, you know, when we, so I, I had the opportunity to live in the world without the internet for a very brief period. And then, you know, throughout high school, it was, from a brick phone to a smartphone kind of advancement. And it's interesting with generative AI like ChatGPT because I think the the best analogy or metaphor that I heard for this was ChatGPT is gives you, if I was a stone masonry, it gives me the piece of stone. And from there, I have to start chiseling and bringing out the art within it, um, which is it's been pretty true for me with a lot of things that I've used it for. But I think the the main concern with generative AI is that it puts up a bar. If you are reliant on it to do things for you, you can only go as far as it will allow you. And the process of being and kind of going back to our earlier conversation, that that ability to be creative, that ability to push the limits, because AI has to come from somewhere. It came from our creative ideas and it builds on them and kind of makes them uh makes that limit for you but i think where you're going to see the real talent shine is being able to like you said augment yourself to use it but then to take it a next level and be creative and go past what its capabilities are because the norm is just going to be that bar of what it's able to accomplish well, yeah because i um I, I i pointed that out the other day i was doing an interview segment and i said i said you know the world seems to think, I think, I think average people, you know, my father-in-law, whatever, like the world seems to think that generative AI is magic. It's wondrous and magic. It knows all things. I'm like, it's just doing a better, faster job of Googling than you. Like it, it doesn't have access to information that you don't have access to. Um, and the problem is, and, and this is actually one of the primary problems I see with generative AI right now is if I go ask it a question, it will give me an answer, but it doesn't cite its sources. It doesn't tell me, well, where did you get that information from? 
And the reason I have a problem with that is I ask it a question, you know, let's, and, and then I go, I go publish the chat GPT response on, on my website. I say, this is the answer. Well, five months from now or two years from now, ChatGPT, someone's going to ask ChatGPT a question. It's going to go scour the internet looking for an answer, and it's going to find its own answer that we all just accepted as authoritative, even though nobody bothered to verify if that was even actually true. And so, you know, to, to the to your point about the bar, it's like the bar will keep getting lower. Like you, you need you need you need humans to be creating and doing something adding to the internet because if you just uh, if you just ask generative AI questions and then publish them as authoritative, there's going to be a downward spiral of disinformation over time. Exactly. And, and you know, I, it really feels like this is the battle that we it's just another form of the battle that we've been doing this whole entire time for the past 20, 30 years, which is you're going to have people that are just going to use it. And they're not going to try anything else. They're not going to have that inner creative to to push themselves because they have zero passion about what they're doing. And then you're going to have people that are passionate about the subjects that they're using it for. And they're going to push the bar. They're going to go above and beyond and be creative because they're going to have problems that they want to solve. And the only way to solve those problems is by going past what ChatGPT can give them. Yeah. We're not we're not going to we're not going to go down this path on this blog. But as you were as you were saying that, I'm like. We, we, we've we've gone exceptionally close to the debate on universal basic income, you know, and, and the argument of, well, if I just give everyone housing and food and shelter and medical care, then nobody's ever going to work. It's like, well, no, people will still work. People want to do things like they will go create, they'll invent, they'll do things. Sure, there will be some people who are like, hey, you know what? I'm good with my UBI. I've got a house. I've got clothes. I'm going to sit here and play my Xbox. Um, you know, let them, but, but, you know, it's like that, but that, that wouldn't be the norm. Like, like most of the population isn't just going to be content living the very basic lifestyle on a universal basic income. Like people are going to go do things, um, that will make the world a better place. So I think, yeah, it was a, it was a very similar argument kind of, uh, to that. It's funny how all those seem to correlate, right? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, and, and, you know, to, to your point, I was like, there's always, there's some some percentage of the population that looks at a situation and can't get over the fact that there will be a percentage of the population that will just use it like you know, so that, that so they can't they can't get rationalize and get over that in their head and so they 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 they're they're fixated on well we can't allow people to use chat gpt because you know one percent of the population is only going to use ChatGPT, and they're never going to try harder or 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 you know be creative and come up with something better. And it's like okay, but ninety nine percent will. So why don't we focus there? Yeah, and it's and it's going to be. I think it's just human progression at that point. It's just how we're wired, and you know that's why that's what makes us grow is going through those struggles. Yeah, you know. So well, you know. You know, again, using my Google, my Google point when, you know, and I'm using Google in the, you know, the, the royal sense of the word Google of uh, online search in general. Um, as that became a thing, you know, schools and, and, and schools in particular 
tried to crack down like you know and well no you know we're, we're going to teach you the you know we're still teaching you the dewey decimal system and we're going to teach you know like like that you you have to learn to do things the hard way and you know fa fast forward you know 20 years and it's like a lot of schools a lot of classes and, and teachers and stuff now have like open internet tests like you know that, that like and which i think is perfectly fair and valid because i'm like as an adult in the work in, in the world i have google so like, I don't need you to teach me how to do stuff without it. I can, you know, I, I, what I want to know is how to use it more effectively, how to, you know, like how to, how to use it as a tool to make things better. Um, and I think generative AI will be sort of the same. And, you know, and I, I, I had a conversation with someone about the, the art aspects, you know, there's all the, the Dali and, and all these things and then, and the debate about, well, is it you know the way it, the, it, you know similar to how I said that the content one doesn't cite its sources? Well, you know the art one is going out and taking everyone's art and just not, you know not not giving credit and etc. And so there are some like legality copyright issues maybe to consider and to try and figure out well how how should that work? But ultimately, I feel like that just will become its own genre like 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 ai art will just be a thing just like you know you've got painting and clay and you know like you know, whatever the different things are is like what generative ai you know that, that that's an art form yeah exactly and kind of like going on one of the uh, the point uh with like open internet tests right that's that was my master's program i mean every test was almost open internet but guess what those tests were like 20 hours long because then what the professor expected us to do was way more than what we'd normally be able to do by ourselves because it wasn't a test of what you know necessarily but what you can do and so now with this i feel like professors have an amazing opportunity because now they can ask their uh, their students to do things that they never thought they'd be able to do just in a classroom setting like actually perform uh, at a level that we've never been able to see students do before because that's what that's what matters in the end, right? It matters. Can you get a problem and then solve it? Like, I don't care what you use to solve this problem. I just need an answer to this problem. And that's where that's where the test is. Right. And that's the and that's how things evolve over time. And there's always that every every step of the way, there's some some there's purists who are like, well, no, that's not the way you do it. You know, like. If if you know if I if someone comes along and they're like well here I've I've got I've I've got a bag of flour here's flour someone else might be like well no you've got to grow your own wheat you got to go mill that yourself like you can't just you know you can't have someone just give you flour and then some along someone comes along after that and they're like here's a loaf of bread and you're like what the hell like you know you got you have to you have to work hard you have to get go get the flour and you have to make the bread it's like you know no I'm I'm starting at a higher point like instead of planting the wheat and then milling the flour I, and then making the bread I'm just starting with the bread so now I can accomplish more because I I took out the first five steps before I even started and and you know that's so interesting cuz you're you're exactly right in the sense that like we'll call them purists right they're they what they learned and the sacrifices that they had to make has impacted their life and so when they see someone skipping that I, I don't I'm not a psychologist. I'm not going to pretend like I know what's going on in their brain, but I would imagine it feels something like, hey, you're cheating. Like you're getting to a point without sacrificing how I had to sacrifice to get to that point. And because of that, 
and they're not necessarily angry because maybe the person is quote unquote cheating, but then they miss out on the personal development. And that's what I think really scares people is that what's going to happen with your personal development if you didn't follow the path that I followed? And then that's where all these questions I feel like are coming out of is how what what is personal development going to even look like in five years? And teachers are going crazy because they don't know. Right, right. But but again, but the point being that even the purists of today who were like, you know, so if you like, again, when when Google came out, like computers were already a thing. It's just the you know searching the Internet wasn't really a thing. And you'd have people who were like, OK, it's OK for you to use the computer, but it's not OK for you to use online search. And now it's like, OK, it's OK for you to use online search, but it's not OK for you to use generative AI. And it's like, OK, but do you not see that you also to to some other previous generation or purist, you are also cheating just in a different way? Like it's a, it's a whole evolution of things. And so, like I said, fast forward five or 10 years, generative AI is just going to be the default. Like, the, you know, it, it will just be weaved into everything we do and it'll just be accepted. And then someone will come up with something else and they'll be like, well, no, you're cheating. You just have to use generative AI. Yeah, and you know, it'd be really interesting to see like what in a classroom setting, how the assignments have evolved. Like what what you ask your high school student to do back in the 1950s versus what you ask them to do now. And like kind of like track that evolvement right. through time. Well, and what you described, I think, I mean, I do think that that sounds like an evolution and a and a and a better way of doing school. Like, yeah, at, at some point when it was all you had, you know, you had to you know, me memorize multiplication tables and you know everything. You had you had to memorize everything, and it's like, well, you can only do that so much. And as we've introduced technology and we've introduced all these things, it's like you you take away all that stuff. Now you can focus on bigger problems. You can focus on being more creative. You could focus on, you know, entirely different things. And and so, you know, it's very, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll tie it back. It's very similar to where we started talking about what you're doing in the first place. It's it's automating the routine and the mundane so that you can focus on things that are complex and important. Exactly. Yep. That's what it, that's what it really comes back to is it's just like we have a job to do. We have problems that need to be solved and we're just trying to get to the solution faster. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, so I, I did have one other question going, going back on uh, on topic, um, which is just in, in your blog post, you 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 specified Chrome extensions, and and I know that Chrome is the you know kind of the you know has the, has a virtual monopoly. It's the kind of the default browser um, in a lot of the world, but. Um, uh, but the Edge browser is also built on Chromium now. Um, so I was just curious for what you're doing. Like, is there any reason it would have to be Chrome, or you know, can you you know do the same thing in Edge? Could you? I mean, even though it's not Chromium, could you? I don't think it's Chromium. Could you do the same thing in Firefox? Yeah, it's a great question. So yeah, the 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 Chrome extensions are Chromium based. So they work on Edge, they work on Brave, Chrome, um, and it's a pretty similar build process for a Firefox extension. I know Firefox has written in their documentation that they're supposed to be accepting what you would call manifest version three, which is the standard which Chromium browsers are built on. 
So in theory, once they implement that into their browser, then you'll also be able to use Chrome extensions on Firefox as well, I believe. Uh, so yeah, it. I mean, they're getting more cross-platform now. And uh, personally, I use Edge now. So before it was Chrome, but uh, for various reasons, I moved into Edge. And yeah, the Chrome extensions work great. Same, so. Okay. All right. Well, um, I want to uh, thank you for taking the time. It was a very interesting conversation. I mean, and we you know, went went quite off topic, but but at, at, but as we pointed out, it was off topic, but everything has a parallel. You know, it's like it wasn't it wasn't entirely off topic. It's just you know, it's kind of just pointing out how these are these are all kind of the same issue and the same debate, just in different areas of our lives. Exactly. I I hundred percent agree. I thought it was it was quite on topic. So in that sense. So. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks, Tony. I appreciate you investing your time to listen to the podcast, but I also invite you to engage on social media. Uh, please go like our Facebook page and follow at Techspective on Twitter and Instagram. You can feel free to let me know what you like, let me know what you don't like, let me know if you love it, let me know if it sucks, and uh, let me know what products you'd like to see reviewed or what uh, questions you'd like to see answered in future posts.